Last week, uh, Pastor George started us out in Acts 2, looking at the way that the earliest believers would gather together in, uh, in fellowship in one another's homes. They would break bread. They would listen to the apostles' teaching. They would, they would pray. They would share freely with one another, with whomever was in need. And this whole summer, we are looking at how the book of Acts invites us to stop coming to church and start being the church. Those early chapters also speak of two other practices. The earliest followers of Jesus uh, continued to go and worship in the temple, pray in the temple. So this is in our story today. It picks up with Peter and John going to the temple. We're also told in Acts 2 that everyone marveled, marveled at the signs and wonders that the apostles Performed. The apostles were the earliest leaders that Jesus had appointed and sent, um, uh, 11 of the 12. All of them had followed Jesus his whole time Jesus was alive. Uh, 11 of the 12 were in his inner circle. So they marveled at these signs and wonders. And these, these are the two things we're picking up in the story today in Acts 3, 1 through 10. We see Peter and John going into the temple and an example of what one of these signs and wonders looked like. That they did. So if you would turn with me, please, in your pew Bibles, um, it's on page 886, 886, or in the Bible that you brought, Acts chapter 3, 1 through 10. And if you're able, let's stand together, please, and we'll read. And since I didn't mark it ahead of time, I'm looking for it same as you. Usually the person up here is off to the races before I've even found it. <laughs> Acts 3, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You might keep that open. We're going to jump around a little bit in Acts today. Anyone remember how the old King James Version uh, translated what Peter and uh, John said to the man 
Remember this? Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. How many when you were little you like saying that in vacation Bible school? Hey, let's just say amen and be done here, huh? <laughs> well, so silver and gold have I none, but such that I have I give thee. And this uh, week, as I, we were, as I was working on this passage, I suddenly thought, wait a minute, how is that true? Because we just read in Acts 2 that the early believers gave whatever they had for anyone who was in need. And we know that the apostles, Peter and John, at this point in the early life of the church, they're responsible for that money. They've got access to that. So what gives? Now, facing it, almsgiving is anticipated as well from pious Jews. Anyone steeped in the old, what we call the Old Testament scriptures, what Jesus and his followers simply called the scriptures, knew that God called God's people to uh, care for, to give alms as an act of piety to the poor, to the powerless. And, and these, these men, the early believers, the women and men, are clearly still following what, what God has called them to do through their scriptures because they still go to this temple to pray at 3 o'clock. And the fact that almsgiving is expected is known of anyone who goes. This guy plants him there every single day. Everyone knows him to receive these alms. So, so what's going on here? What do Peter and John have to give? It seems that Luke, in his writing of Acts, he's going to choose these essential stories to remind all of us who follow Jesus at the, as the church about what we essentially have to give. And what Peter and John have to give this day at the gate called Beautiful is the authority to continue Jesus' salvation mission to all people. See, if we look back a bit further in Acts, if you flip back a couple of pages to Acts 1, I love the way that Luke starts this book. He wrote the first gospel that we have, Luke's gospel, and then he says this in Acts 1.1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning. Literally, that is all that Jesus began to say and to do until the day when he was taken up to heaven. Uh, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. And these apostles, two of whom are Peter and John. You see, Acts is the story of how Jesus' words and Jesus' work continue in the world. How Jesus' salvation mission, how God's salvation mission through Jesus continues in the world through the people who are following Jesus. So the church of Jesus Christ of Nazareth has only one mission, and that is the mission that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was sent to fulfill, the salvation of the world. And the book of Acts is a story of how that salvation continues throughout the world, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Now, like I said, it's not an exhaustive history. What Luke does is he chooses these paradigm events, these essential events, these clarifying stories that demonstrate very clearly that Jesus' saving words and Jesus' saving actions continue full force, just like he said they would, through those who follow him. Now, you may be thinking, now, wait a minute, Laurie. How is this a salvation story? I thought this was a healing story. So why anyway, are we talking about this as a salvation story, right? 
Well, in Luke's storytelling, salvation has an exhaustive sphere. Luke, in Luke Acts, talks about salvation more than any of the other gospel writers. And when Luke uses the word for salvation, very often when someone is healed, the actual Greek word for it is they were saved. When Paul heals a, a, a lame man in very much the same way that Peter is here in Acts 14, he looks at him and sees that, there, that, that, that faith to be healed, our English Bibles say, faith to be saved is what the Greek says. See, healing is, and salvation in Luke's storytelling is an exhaustive sphere. It includes what we would call the spiritual, but it expands even further than that. So that God's restorative rule is over all of creation. Jesus has the authority to restore God's rule over bodies through healing, over creation in miracles, over corrupt and dehumanizing human institutions, such as the abuse of the Sabbath by religious leaders in his time. And Jesus' signs, Jesus' healing, Jesus' other miracles demonstrate that the purpose of his mission is to save all of creation from all that destroys. So this healing ministry, it's really an important part of this mission because disease, decay, and death were not God's purpose for those whom God has created. Now, Peter and John, you'll remember, they're really intimately acquainted with Jesus' healing ministry. Remember how right after um, Jesus called Peter, you can go back and read this, and Mark especially, Peter's called and Jesus goes with Peter to Peter's home, and who does Jesus heal? Do you remember? His mother-in-law. That is very good for family relations when Peter's about to take off. Jesus immediately heals Peter's mother-in-law, and we're told that the house becomes like unbearably crowded because everyone brought their sick to Jesus for healing. This is what Jesus did and what he taught. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, we're told, and he healed. He proclaimed God's restorative rule over all things, and he healed as a visible sign of Jesus' authority to restore all things. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, and Jesus demonstrated the truth of his teaching with signs of that kingdom. And that next thing you know, the things that the prophets had said would happen when the Messiah arrived began to happen. He sends word to John the Baptist, the blind receive their sight, the dead are raised, and the lame are healed. The lame can walk. And this is also what Jesus sent his disciples, like Peter and John, out to teach and to do. Here, if you look back at Luke 9, maybe keep your thumb in Acts and flip on back to Luke 9. Here in Luke 9, verse 1, then Jesus gave the twelve together, called them together, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They go together. See, Jesus secures salvation. His resurrection demonstrates that. The power of salvation over all that degrades all that destroys. And this power of salvation in word and in deed, in teaching and in action, is what Peter and John have to give that day at the gate called Beautiful. 
In fact, Peter even puts this together later in Acts 4. I hope this week that you'll go and read further in Acts around this, that you'll reread this story again and keep reading like right up to chapter 5 and 6 where we pick up together next week because this is a long, wonderful story of what happens after this healing. And what happens is Peter and John get hauled in front of the uh, religious authorities because they're not super happy with what's happening. But um, in Acts 4, when Peter is explaining to the religious authorities what he has done to heal this man, he he says in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Here's why they weren't so happy. Whom you crucified, <laughs> whom God raised from the dead. And then in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. They're just linked in the thinking and experience of the early church. They wouldn't have this discussion of whether healing is spiritual or physical. Salvation and healing are linked. Now, I know there's all sorts of questions about who didn't get healed, and we're not going to answer those today because you don't want me going on for 45 minutes. <laughs> and I couldn't answer it in 45 minutes. But today, this man is healed. And our question is, what does it mean? What does it mean about what Peter and John have to give? And do we know what we have to give? The name of Jesus is what Peter said. See, the name of Jesus designates the sphere of power within which Christ acts in the midst of history. I'll say that again. The name of Jesus designates the, the sphere of power within which Christ acts in the midst of history. Why did the apostles perform signs and wonders? They performed them to demonstrate that this comprehensive, exhaustive salvation given in Jesus Christ continues in the church of Jesus Christ, continues to, to change history, to act in the midst of history through the people who follow Jesus Christ, who, who live in his name and are given his spirit. This authority to restore God's restorative rule. So when Peter and John show up for prayers on this day in the temple, something extraordinary is about to happen. Something's about to happen that demonstrates for all of Jerusalem that Jesus, who many thought was dead, isn't done yet. That demonstrates Jesus isn't done working yet. Looking intently at the man, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And this man who looked at Peter and John, expecting the probable, receives the impossible. He stands on healed limbs. He doesn't just walk into the temple for prayers. For the first time in his life, let's not forget this, he is running and leaping and praising God. I think there's a song about that too. Now, can you imagine the wonder and amazement of all in the temple that day, discovering that it wasn't just Jesus' teaching that lived on? It's also the power and authority over all sin that cripples that lives on. That the risen Jesus was continuing to both announce and enact salvation and healing through the words and actions of his followers. The profound impact of Jesus' teaching and Jesus' actions continues in history through the church that is called in Jesus' name. And this church must not only teach and announce salvation boldly. This church, is a, if it's a church in Jesus' name, 
will also participate as God enacts salvation. This church, in the name of Jesus, will participate as God enacts healing. This church, in the name of Jesus, will participate as God drives out the evil spirits of the age that enslave and degrade. This church, in the name of Jesus, will participate, will meet the eye of the world that is expecting the probable, and in the name of Jesus, witness God giving the impossible. And so how is this not happening? I so struggle with that question. Where is the power of the authority of the name of Jesus to heal enacted in the church today? And Luke's story raises specifically the question, do we know what we have to give? There is a story that F.F. Bruce relates. He's one of my favorite um, uh, Old Test- New Testament scholars. He is with our Lord now. But it's a story that Thomas Aquinas, the great teacher of the church in the Middle Ages, once visited Pope Innocent II when the Pope was counting out a large sum of money. You see, Thomas, said the Pope, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. True, Holy Father, was Thomas's reply. Neither can she now say rise and walk. Now, we'll have to test and discern this observation that I'm about to make together. But in the limited sphere of my own religious experience, it seems to me that the greater the wealth, power, and education of a Christian congregation, the less the reliance on the powerful expression of the gospel in their midst through the Holy Spirit of God. The poorer the experience of the power of the name of Jesus. It seems to me that the greater the wealth and power and education of a church, the more we we, we fixate our attention on the secondary, the resulting problems, the silver and gold needed by the one begging for alms at the gate, and look right past the crippling condition. So functionally, effectively, we begin to operate within the limits of that which can be reasonably accomplished with our piety or our practices. See, silver and alms at the gate, those, of course, are the temporary fix to a secondary problem. The alms at the gate are a limited fix to a secondary problem. And by secondary, I don't mean it's not important. It's just, it's a a resulting problem of the man's crippling condition, the fact that he cannot walk and it's impossible that he should ever walk again. The intractable issue is the man's crippling condition. It's been this way since birth and it's not going to change. So the best that one hopes for at the gate of the temple is a solution to the secondary problem of his poverty. Well, you know the power of the crippling condition, don't you? It's that situation that you are powerless to change. It's not going to go away. It's the impossible loss. We've lost people to the crippling condition. We're inundated daily with the news of cascading events that originate in the crippling conditions of the world. The intractable poverty or greed, hatred or racism, the inescapable reality of the diagnosis or of aging or of disease or of loss or decay. And any healing of or solution to these crippling conditions is so far out of our reach, you may as well suggest that a person can come back from the dead as believe that anything can be done about it. And then along comes a man who says, look at me. 
Here is the momentous, extraordinary thing that is playing out at the steps in the temple at three in the afternoon as the crowds are streaming in for prayer. It is the visible, unmistakable demonstration that Jesus Christ of Nazareth did not step into history to provide temporary fixes to the cascading effects of the crippling condition. Jesus stepped into history to heal the crippling condition. And only the power of God and Jesus can heal the crippling condition. Now, I want to be very clear. What I'm not setting up here is this discussion of whether or not the church should be doing like acts of justice and social justice or should be preaching. Because Peter didn't preach at the guy. He healed him physically. So there's something else going on here that Luke wants us to catch. And when this, for good reason, created a spectacle in the temple, the first words out of Peter's mouth in Acts 3.12, clue us into what's going on. Peter says to everyone who gathered, you Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? And listen to this part. As though by our own power or piety, we had made him walk. As though by our own power or piety. What happens when we forget that in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we have been sent to announce and enact God's impossible healing of the crippling condition? Have I settled for the probable? Have we settled for what we can do through our own power or piety? Have we limited our words and our actions to the pious, charitable, probable responses that the world expects from its historic religious traditions? Do we know what we have to give? This healing, this salvation, this wholeness, this power in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth over sin and death and all that oppresses and all it destroys, this is what the church has received. This is what the church has to give to him who is able to do far more than we can ask or even imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. We cannot control it. We don't own it. We can't even summon it with prime shipping to arrive on the doorstep of our neighbors within two business days. But to give this power, we need to receive and to know this power. And do we know it? It's a healing Sunday, so let me offer a minor personal example which may illustrate what I mean. And in telling you this story, I, I don't like telling personal stories like this about healing and things because I'm very conflicted about healing. This, these, are, these are conflicting stories for me, but I do, and I don't imagine this is as heavy a burden as many carry. But I, I have a crippled spine. I have scoliosis. And it's nowhere as near as severe or debilitating as many people in the world have scoliosis. But it was severe enough when I was a kid to warrant many years in a brace as a young girl and an early teenager, and then surgery that fused my spine using this rod and then a couple of screws. Um, in fact, when I lived in France to get my visa, you, you go in for a medical exam and an x-ray to make sure you don't have TB. And this doctor had a very droll sense of humor, and she puts my x-ray up, and you see you know, the normal bones you'd expect, and then you see this rod and these two screws. And she puts it up and flicks on the light, and then she looks at me and she goes, do you know about this? <laughs> this isn't going to change. I have a curved spine that's been fused. This is unyielding. So any energy that I spend on my back is invested in confronting the secondary problems, the cascading conditions 
cascading issues that come from this crippling condition, when there's stiffness or pain or spasms. Now, 15 years ago, I was in a particular point where these secondary issues were causing you know, daily pain, chronic pain, and I was remarkably discouraged. And I was at a healing prayer service at the church where I was a pastor here in Seattle. And there's no sense going forward because my crippling condition isn't going to change. It's a fused spine. And, and I'm watching two of our elders, Guy Tucker and Tammy Clark, and they're praying for people. And as I'm sitting there praying for the people who go forward, this, this image kind of surfaces in my mind of me healed entirely from the scoliosis. And next thing you know, I am, I am tears going down my face because I can't even imagine what that would feel like. And these words of assurance surfaced. You are not in bondage to your back. And isn't that the issue with the crippling conditions? They become so much a part of us that we accept their hold as permanent. Because the losses are real and the suffering at times is overwhelming. They become so much a part of us that not only do we just walk by them, everybody else just walks by them. We reduce the limit of our expectations to that which can actually be done. Yet in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the hold that these conditions exerts is temporary. I will be healed of scoliosis. It's a matter of when, not if. And praying with empty hands for the healing in the name of Jesus was participation in the reality that Jesus' death and resurrection signals the victory of God's reign over the crippling conditions. I don't know when the healing is going to be complete. I suspect at my own resurrection. But healing that day in the prayers that followed as I walked down for healing prayers with Dami and Guy was freedom from bondage to this crippling condition. This is the salvation we announce in Jesus. We anticipate the power of Jesus to go to work. What is your crippling condition? What is your permanent, unyielding, primary loss? And have you grown so accustomed to being defeated by it that you no longer focus your hope or your prayers on its healing? Peter and John, as I said, will find themselves in a fair bit of trouble, and we will look at that next Sunday. But today, as we prepare for healing prayers, I want to turn to Acts 4, 29 to 30, which is the prayer that the early followers prayed after Peter and John got, you know, reprimanded and sent home. And here's what they pray. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy Spirit, your Holy Servant, Jesus. See, when it comes to the piety or power required to heal the crippling conditions, our hands are empty as a church. But we do not worship a God whose hands are empty. We boldly speak the word of God's ongoing, liberating, healing work of salvation in the name of Jesus. We pray that the Lord will reach out the Lord's hand to heal and to release, and we've witnessed it. I've seen this in churches and among people who expect and know that the power of God is still at work in the world, that signs and wonders at this healing will be performed through the name of Jesus, the humble and holy Son of God. It's a when, not an if. So for our healing prayers today, after I pray here, we will sing a song, and then we have elders and all of us in front. And if you would like to, to come forward and have prayer for healing.
in your life and somebody else's life in the world, uh, please come forward to be anointed and have prayer at the end. We will continue those prayers after the benediction if we have more people who want healing. And as you sit in worship with all of us as we pray, would you please direct your prayers and your hopes towards the crippling conditions in your life and the lives of others and the life of our world that we long and hope for God to meet. And maybe we can learn together what it is to depend on this and to watch and to see God work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, here is my truth. I don't know how to give what Peter and John gave. And since I don't know how to enact this liberating, healing, impossible deliverance in the name of Jesus, I forget that we have been given this liberating, healing, impossible deliverance in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. My words profess faith that you not only have, but are and will rescue your people from our crippling conditions. So forgive my fear when it comes to reaching out and acting in this faith. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Lord, pour out your power on us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Forgive our despair. Forgive our inaction. Forgive our doubts. Forgive our anger. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, pour out your power on us, Lord God. Give us your Holy Spirit to heal our brokenness, to comfort us in our grief, to encourage us in our desperation. Rescue us from our addictions. Liberate us from our cynicism. Befriend us in the depths of loneliness. Deliver us from all evil. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, pour out your power on us, Lord God. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us to lay hands on the sick for their healing. Empower us to confront and remove the barriers of injustice. Empower us to walk in righteousness and holiness for the restoration of your people. Empower us to act with humility and holiness to the glory of your name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen.